From the Holy Gospel according to St. John. Since the Passover of the Jews was near, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He found in the temple area those who sold oxen, sheep, and doves, as well as the money changers seated there. He made a whip out of cords and drove them all out of the temple area with the sheep and the oxen and spilled the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who sold doves, he said, take these out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples recalled the words of scripture, zeal for your house will consume me. At this, the Jews answered and said to him, what sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, this temple has been under construction for 46 years, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Therefore, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they came to believe the scripture and the word Jesus had spoken. One of the vices as we go through our capital vices study that uh, we come to tonight, which has done a lot of destructive work in the world, is wrath. Wrath is the sin of disordered anger. Now, we might start with that question, what is anger to begin with? As a passion, anger is motivated by love. It's particularly the feeling that we experience when the good we hope for, when something that we desire or something or some evil that we desire to uh, avoid is difficult to attain or to avoid. More specifically, anger arises at a perceived injustice, either to ourselves or to someone that we love. It's always motivated in some way by love. Put another way, anger seeks to redress the wrong done to a person. It moves us to action. Anger, as a human passion, though, is meant to be governed by reason. When it's so governed, it's virtuous and helps us to grow in holiness. A dad should get angry when someone is trying to hurt his family. We should be angry when there's sin and injustice. The Lord was right to be angry in the temple, in that gospel passage. Anger is actually in many ways, well, it it is a gift. It's a gift from the Lord because it tells us, it shows us, hey, you're perceiving some injustice. And when properly ordered, that anger moves us to seek that injustice be restrained and punished in order to uh, stop it occurring again. Virtuous anger then fulfills the commandment to love, even our enemies and those who do us wrong, because it ultimately seeks the restoration of right relation between two parties when both, or one of them at least, has perceived some sort of injustice. Virtuous anger is, so to speak, um, 
de-centered. It's, its standards are justice, and it reflects and perpetuates true justice, which is not warped by pride, but is based upon zeal for divine glory. True anger, good anger, is motivated by love and guided by reason. But we know that anger can go wrong. That passion that we feel of anger can be uh, wrongly ordered. It can be at the wrong person or it can be in the wrong amount. It can be for too long a time or it can be um, kind of misdirected. And this is the sin of wrath. Wrath is disordered anger. Not all anger is sinful, but only this wrathful type of anger, a disordered anger. Wrath imitates our desire for justice and the right order of true happiness and its victory over obstacles, but it goes about doing that in a way which actually causes destruction rather than flourishing. Disordered anger can come in many different forms. It can come when we're angry about things that are not injustices. For example, when a child gets angry that uh, another kid won the game fair and square, or when a parent sets a reasonable limit and a kid gets angry, or when a boss says, this is the way that we're going to do it today, and it's not unjust and we get angry. Or it can come, uh, it can be disordered insofar as it's out of proportion to the injustice, or uh, when it moves us to do things that we shouldn't do. For example, like when I was about 12 years old and uh, responding to something that my brother said to me and then responding to my dad's response at me complaining about my brother doing something, I stormed out of the house and left the screen door hanging by the side right there, right? It's a little disordered. It's not like my brother was actually causing me much harm. My pride got the better for me. And my family uh, continues to this day to remind me of that incident. In fact, uh, it was only about two years ago that we actually fixed the screen door. (laughs) So, you see, anger can have long consequences, you know. It also can last too long. Like when we hold on to past hurts, refusing to forgive them, refusing to make that phone call that we ought to make to a person that we ought to love who hurt us in the past, or when it's directed towards the wrong person. We've all had that moment where we've come out of something, maybe we perceived rightly some injustice and we came out of a meeting or uh, came home from school or came back to the house and feel that anger. And what happens? Someone does something completely innocent, completely accidental, and they bear the brunt of our anger. To put it bluntly, we get stupid when we're angry. Reason, our reason often um, kind of goes out the door For St. Thomas, um, who follows Aristotle with regard to anger, there's three different kinds of wrathful people. 
There, and maybe, maybe you can identify which one of these you'd be most tempted towards. Um, the choleric person is prone to sudden outbursts of anger. Right? He gets angry for slight reasons and too quickly. Right? Someone just uh, messes up your order at, at McDonald's and you've lost everything. Right? It's, it's the end of the world. There's an error in uh, something that's written and there, it's the end of the world. This is roughly what we mean when we say someone has a bad temper, right? The sullen person, on the other hand, maintains his anger for an excessive amount of time. That person holds grudges for a long time. The ill-tempered person is bent on vengeance, perhaps this is the worst, bent on vengeance and will not say no to anger until he achieves it. When I see them punished... C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce um, kind of uh, has the scene where there's a, uh, a man who wasn't very nice to another man and, that, and he meets this other man and in, in heaven, basically, or in the outskirts of heaven, so to speak. And uh, this man that he meets, he knows to, be, to have been uh, a murderer. He knows that he murdered someone. And he says, how did you get here? How, how is it possible that you got here at all? And the man says, uh, well, actually, the guy that I murdered is also here. And yes, I did do that, but I, I, I repented. I repented of that, of that thing, basically. And the man who is going to end up back in hell, and the whole premise of the story is that uh, the, the people in hell get to come see about purgatory and some of them get to stay. Obviously, that's not theologically correct, but it, the point is the guy wants vengeance against this other man. And he won't, he won't let it go. He says, I would rather be back in hell than be with you because you're receiving something so good right now holding on to the desire for vengeance. If we hold on to wrath for too long, its daughters will start to be evident in our lives. Um, those are indignation which runs, runs down and despises the person who has made us angry. Maybe we start to murmur and talk about the other person. There's a swelling of the mind in which wrath moves us to scheme about taking revenge. I'm going to get him. I'm going to figure out how. I don't know how yet. You can kind of think of the Count of Monte Cristo in, uh, if, if you've seen that movie where uh, he, he just is scheming for his entire life to figure out how to get revenge. He wants revenge and it consumes him. Clamor, which is an angry verbal outburst. Contumely, which is disrespectful and insulting speech. Blasphemy, which expresses anger towards God, and quarreling when anger moves us to deeds and sometimes even to violence. So given all of that, obviously uh, maybe we see some things that we're more prone to within the vice of anger. How do we purify wrath? What's the opposite virtue? Meekness. Meekness. Blessed are the meek, says the Lord. 
Meekness is the virtue which moderates our anger in accordance with reason. It's a virtue connected to temperance and so a form of self-control. And its development um, doesn't happen instantaneously, obviously. The first step to cultivating meekness in our life is to recognize um, that vicious dispositions and acts are, in fact, evil and lead to um, languishing. They lead to all of these negative effects. And that there's a possibility of not falling into wrath. But that knowledge isn't enough. As we've talked about over and over again these past uh, six weeks, five weeks, just knowing that something is bad is not enough. It's good, it's important, it's essential, but it's not enough. We have to take concrete actions in order to develop this virtue, and especially with, with wrath. We have to think about those actions before the occasion comes where we might feel wrathful. To begin to plan, how will I react when I know that this occasion is coming? How will I uh, build virtue? Those actions that we start to take, they won't have, uh, they won't be, um, they'll be actions according to the virtue of meekness, but they won't be from that virtue yet. It'll take time to develop that over time. So what what actions can we take right now to help us live meekly? As with other sins against intemperance, it's essential to avoid the occasion, the near occasion of sin. Now, sometimes uh, someone does something that we can't control, right? In fact, often that happens. And those are probably the times where we get angry the most. But consider that we do have the possibility of not giving in immediately to that anger, There's a lot of wisdom in that idea that my dad and mom taught me over and over again as a kid. Just count to ten, Will. (laughs) Right? Just stop for a second and count to ten. Cool off. Avoid certain discussions when you're in the grip of an emotion like anger. Don't make big decisions when you're angry. Remember, it's not about denying that we are angry. Rather, meekness invites us to consider why we're angry, and we need time to consider that. We need to ask those questions. What perception has led me to this anger? Am I angry for the right reason, at the right person? Am I overestimating my need for human respect? Is my anger about me and bringing glory to me and vindicating my rights or is it about loving others? A spiritual exercise that can help us to uh, work on this is to make a list of the times we get angry and the reasons why. Kind of look back over that list over time and say, hmm, okay, I noticed this and I noticed this. And maybe I can draw a little bit of a conclusion that this motivates my anger 
And uh, okay, that's okay that I'm angry in that situation, but I've got to work to make sure that I'm directing that in the right way to love people. So that's one exercise there, kind of cooling down, thinking about things reasonably. In order to do that, in order to not just fly off the handle, we have to exercise some mental discipline when the occasion of wrath comes. In the grip of anger, we have to choose to consider how the person offending us might have had an excuse or how we ourselves have done similar things in the past and are sinners or how the person that, has done, uh, that is making us angry has done something good to us in the past rather than choosing to brood on that offense, to build it up. Oh, man, he meant to do that. St. Ignatius of Loyola was no stranger to anger. He was a hot-headed choleric. But over time, as he was converted to Christ, he learned this type of mental discipline. In his spiritual exercises, he uh, counsels, and he's talking specifically to uh, someone who's about to go on a retreat. He counsels um, the person who's about to go on retreat that in order to uh, have a good retreat, it's necessary that he suppose that every person is more ready to put a good interpretation on another statement than to condemn it as false. In other words, to give people the benefit of the doubt in the moment. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't eventually come back around full circle and ask the question, hey, you said this, you did this, I perceived it as this, but I know you have good intentions, so could you help me understand? Could you help me uh, understand what you were thinking? How do you understand what you said? How do you understand what you did? Taking that time in those relationships, saying no to the initial like brooding, and saying yes to later coming back and growing in love for the other person, even to the point of being able to correct them, to admonish them in a kind, in a meek way, in a way which seeks their good rather than seeks our own good. This is fostered by the third kind of thing that we need to work on if we're to grow in meekness, which is humility. Now, there's a couple ways to do that, right? Um, One way to uh, work on humility, of course, is to pray for it, uh, and that's necessary. But another thing that's super uh, helpful is to ask the people around us whom we trust, those who are our friends, our neighbors, our family, people that we trust, to help us in learning how angry we are or how we are perceived to be in difficult situations, right? To identify those people and say, hey, you were here. Um, I I noticed that I got angry. What was your perception of me, right? Seeking that type of counsel helps to see reality, the reality of one's anger more clearly. And it also fosters a growth in humility And that leads to um, a a, a greater understanding, a greater willingness to seek the good of the other even when there's wrath or even when the passion of anger is aroused. Kind of 
allows one to say, okay, well, maybe my kind of barometer of what's in unjust is a little bit off here. Maybe I'm uh, excessively angry here because of pride, which gives us an exaggerated sense of offenses against us. You have to cultivate virtue, asking God for help there, and then also asking others to help us uh, in growing in humility. As we grow in humility, we'll also be more inclined to seek forgiveness immediately for our own wrongdoing, especially from the vice of wrath. St. Francis de Sales says that as soon as we are, if we want to grow uh, in the virtue of meekness, that as soon as we perceive that we're guilty of an act of wrath, we must repair the fault immediately by an act of meekness towards the person with whom we're angry. Kind of makes an analogy with lying here. Um, He says it's a sovereign remedy against a lie to contradict it upon the spot. As soon as you recognize that you've said something untrue, you contradict it. So also with anger, we repair anger And it's better to repair it instantly by a contrary act of meekness. For recent wounds are most easily cured. Now, in particular, I want to draw attention uh, in that vein to uh, asking for forgiveness amongst friends, right? But also asking, that's a little, that's somewhat easier, but also if you have care of someone, right, whether you're a mom or a dad, a grandpa or grandma, whether you're a boss with subordinates, whether you're uh, someone who uh, has care of a community, it's so important. And wrath often afflicts those who have some care a little bit more deeply, some care of a community. It's so important that if we recognize that we've been acting out of foolish pride, if we've been acting wrathfully, even if there was some sort of injustice, that we ask for forgiveness, even of those that we have care for. If a priest says something angry to a person, if he says something wrathful, if he's motivated by pride, he should ask for forgiveness. If a dad or a mom kind of goes off the handle at their kids, they should ask for forgiveness. If a boss or a teacher kind of flies off the handle at a student, he or she should ask for forgiveness. And in so doing, friends, there's such a great uh, growth in humility in the person, in meekness, in the person who's asking for forgiveness. But also an example is given of one who, uh, uh, that seeking forgiveness is not actually an act of weakness, but of true virtue. And that leads also to us seeking to offer forgiveness as one who has been forgiven. Peter approached the Lord one day and said, if my brother sins against me, how often must I forgive him? As many as seven times, 
Jesus answered, I say to you, not seven times, but 77 times. This is why the kingdom of heaven may be likened to a king who decided to settle accounts with his servants. Since he had no way of paying it back, his master ordered him to be sold along with his wife, his children, and all his property in payment of the debt. At that, the servant fell down, did him homage, and said, Be patient with me, and I will pay you back in full. Moved with compassion, the master of that servant let him go and forgave him the loan. When that servant had left, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a much smaller amount. He seized him and started to choke him, demanding, Pay back what you owe. Falling to his knees, his fellow servant begged him, Be patient with me, and I will pay you back in full. But he refused. Friends, if we're not forgiving of others, if we don't cultivate meekness, if we don't fight against wrath, we won't forgive others. And if we don't forgive others as we've been forgiven, then the Lord will not forgive us in the end. We won't be able, we won't be capable of receiving his mercy, but we'll choose to stay in our prideful wrath. Now, probably far more than at any point in history in the past, we live in a world that's filled with the encounter with other people's opinions. There was a time when books had to be painstakingly copied out by hand by the small percentage of society that could read and write, and in those days, opinions were a little bit more difficult to circulate. At least they couldn't circulate so far. But now we live in a world of 24-hour news cycles, of constant publication. Even the constant publication of daily newspapers was left in the dust a long time ago by the internet, which constantly publishes everyone's opinion about everything 24-7 from the moment we get up in the morning, we open up our phone, and immediately we know what everyone thinks about everything. If we want to, we can find out what everyone thinks about us. And the constant exposure to the opinions of others, the constant hanging on what others will say, the constant taking of the temperature and the constant concern about the praise or blame which may fall on us from others can begin to create in our heart the disordered desire which makes the last of the seven deadly sins, vanity or vainglory, which is the disordered desire for praise. Like all the seven deadly sins, vanity imitates true happiness. We think that the truly happy person would be praised we think that the truly happy person would be recognized for what he is by others, and they would say so. And that accolade that he receives, the medal that's hung on the winning athlete, the trophy that's erected to the victorious warrior, the medal that's pinned on his chest, the award, the degree, the honor which recognizes virtue. We think that's an important component of happiness. 
and it is, but vanity twists that desire until we seek for praise too much and in the wrong places. We think about what vanity means for a moment. As with the other seven deadly sins, we have to open up our view a little bit. There's the obvious form, but then there's other forms that are more subtle and perhaps more insidious. The obvious form of the vain person is the person who's constantly asking what other people think and constantly making not-so-concealed attempts to draw up praise, to fish for compliments, taking excessive care of the appearance, always hanging on every word, always wanting to be the most popular and the most well-liked. That kind of portrait of vanity is familiar enough to us, but it's important to realize that vanity is a very subtle thing probably far more than we realize, vanity gets into our decisions and sometimes corrupts them. For every time we do something that we should not do because of what others will say, every time we leave some good that we should do undone because of what others will say, then we're giving in to vanity. When St. Thomas described vanity's daughters, he described love of novelties as one of them. That's the sort of thing we always think about. Hey, look at me, the kind of obnoxious seeking for attention or applause. But very interestingly, he lists other things as fruits of vanity as well, things that we don't so often associate with it. He says, for example, that contention is something that arises from vanity. Contention meaning unreasonable argument. And if we think about our own lives, how many times have we obstinately dug in our heels and defended our own plan because we wanted to be right? Even when we suspected perhaps that we were wrong, we couldn't admit it, and we wanted to be seen to be right. And St. Thomas also says that discord, that's unreasonable refusal to agree with others, to adopt the plans of others, it comes from vanity too. And if we are honest with ourselves, we have to think about how often we've insisted on doing something our own way because it had to be our plan that was chosen, because we had to be seen to be the author of the good. And even St. Thomas says disobedience is a daughter of vanity, because we have to call attention to ourselves by doing the good in our own way so that everyone will see that it's us who does it. And that prevents us from obeying like we should. It presents the very, and prevents the various communities of which we're a part from an ordered functioning. So vanity gets into our hearts in subtle ways. It pushes us and it prods us, afraid of what other people will say against us or what they will say in praise of us. It warps and distorts our judgment. What's the remedy? I want to close by saying two things about the remedy of vanity, making two little suggestions about how we can try to root vanity out of our hearts. The first one is more practical, maybe, and the second one, I think, is of more importance, but it's a little more deeper and more abstract. First is the practical thing. One remedy for the deadly sin of vanity is the ancient spiritual discipline of silence. We live in a world constantly surrounded by everyone else's opinion, 
Even especially the way that we use social media now, we constantly broadcast every detail of our lives and constantly look to see what other people are going to say about it. And if we immerse ourselves in that kind of, <clears throat> in that kind of cyclone of opinion constantly, it's very difficult not to let it get an unreasonable hold on our heart. And so the ancient discipline of silence is to step back from a while from what other people say, to refuse for a moment to listen so that we can think in clarity and in calm about what is objectively good and not be swayed so much by the opinions of the crowd. We practice that discipline of silence in various practical ways. One important way that we practice it is by carving out some period of time for prayer into our lives. If we constantly immerse ourselves in the opinions of others, we won't make much progress against vanity. We need a little time to step away from others and in the silence to talk to God. But that discipline of silence, even though it can and it must take the form of dedicated times of silence when we unplug ourselves from the world and shut out all the voices so that their clamor has less effect upon our heart, it also becomes a way of living and a way of being. We practice that discipline of silence when we intentionally don't look to see how other people react to the things that we do. We practice that discipline of silence when we intentionally don't seek approval or don't fish for compliments. When we're satisfied, like the Lord says in the gospel, with letting our good be done in secret, so that our Father who sees in secret may reward us. If we're struggling with vanity, perhaps we need to increase a little bit the amount of silence that we have in our lives. The second remedy that I want to recommend is a little more spiritual and a little more abstract. In his essay, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis describes the human desire for praise, so distorted by vanity, as something that actually contains within itself something of humility, oddly enough, and even a deep religious significance. Lewis says that vanity does point to something humble because the pleasure of being praised, when you think about it for a moment, is actually quintessentially the pleasure of an inferior. It's the pleasure of a dog in the presence of his master. It's the pleasure of a child in the presence of his parents. It's the pleasure of a subject in the presence of his king. And it's the pleasure of a creature in the presence of his God. That's what Lewis said about that desire for praise. When it's not distorted by vanity, it actually points toward something of deep religious significance. What Lewis pointed out is that among all the different descriptions that we have in sacred scripture of what heaven is like, of what glory is like, we can't eradicate from the scriptural picture that being praised is part of the promised reward. But the praise that's being talked about there is not the praise of human beings, it is the praise of God. And we desire that, actually. It means something to us. 
The truth is that we know deep down that we are creatures, that we didn't make ourselves, that we were made by another and for another. To be a creature means that the whole reason for our being, the whole purpose of our lives, is to reflect God's glory. You and I were made for nothing else, and we have no lower destiny than to please our God. And we are told that at the end of time, God will pronounce his judgments, and God will praise his saints. Well done my good and faithful servant. Each of us longs to hear that. Each of us yearns to hear that. I think that now in this world, our wildest dreams can't quite imagine what it must be like when the soul finally hears its creator say, well done. When the soul finally knows that it has pleased him, whom it was our duty to please, whom we were created to please. And so that remedy that I want to suggest for vanity is to meditate on the last judgment and on the praise for God. Our desire for praise, which points us toward a desire that God should praise us, that God should approve us, that God should say to us at the end of our life, well done, it gets twisted and distorted by vanity. And instead of trying to live in such a way as to be praiseworthy in God's sight, we go looking for a cheap counterfeit in the praises of this world. And we seek for human praise, which is so utterly fickle, and we should meditate on that. When the crowd is pleased, it sings your praises, but it constantly changes its mind. It's constantly moving on to the next best thing. But if at the end of your life, God will praise you, then you will be praised forever then you'll be clothed with a glory that will never pass away. And human praise is often unjust, and it's often wrong. We do praise greatness and achievement and nobility and virtue, but we also praise very many ridiculous things. We praise folly, we praise sin, we praise vice, the praise of man is often unjust, but the praise of God is true. To be praised by God is not just to appear to be good, but to be good indeed. Not just to appear to be successful, but to have succeeded in the only way that matters. And so by meditation, we have to fix the day of our judgment deeply in our hearts if we want to overcome the spirit of vanity. We have to learn to care how God will view our actions and whether God will praise us or blame us, for it's there in pleasing our Father that we find our fulfillment, and vanity is a cheap counterfeit of that. And if we do that, if we root the day of the last judgment deeply in our hearts by meditation, if we see how worthless and fickle is the praises of man, how glorious is the praise of God, then we may hope to hear him say to us one day, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's joy.